The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. We're on the leading edge of a smart machine age led by artificial intelligence that will be as transformative for us as the Industrial Revolution was for our ancestors. Smart machines will take over millions of jobs in manufacturing office work, the service sector, the professions, you name it. Not only can they know more data and analyze it faster than any mere human, but smart machines are free of the emotional, psychological and cultural baggage that so often mars human thinking. To stay relevant, we have to play a different game. Our guest today offers us that game plan. Welcome to the first episode of the Inside Learning Podcast brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. I'm your host, Aidan McCullen, and our guest today is Professor of Business Administration, Batten Fellow and Batten Executive in Residence at the Darden School of Business and author of Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change Amidst a Plethora of Other Titles. Ed Hess, welcome to Inside Learning. Thank you very much. It's wonderful being with you. Wonderful being with you. It's great to be with you, Ed. You've been a huge influence on my thinking and my own learning as well as my learning. I thought we'd start with something that is in the title of one of your books, Humility is the New Smart. You talk about a shift from the world of old smart to new smart. I'd love if we'd start with this. Sure, sure. Well, most of us were raised and we began early in our early childhood in elementary school to under what I call the concept is we define ourselves by how smart me how smart we are. And how's that defined? Think about it. When you were in school, how did you know you were smart? Well, you got the highest grade on a paper, or the teacher made comments saying you're smart. And so being smart basically was a I got to be smarter than the person next to me. All right. I got to get the highest grade. And that means I'm smart. So our ego is invested in knowing more than other people, being able to remember more than other people. So our ego is defined by what we know. And in OSmart, I made a good grade and I know these answers. And someone comes up to me and says, hey, I don't really understand. What, how does this impact what you know? And our immediate reaction is to become defensive. All right. And it's the ingrained ways that we've been wired ourselves. I mean, we, we, are, we are wired to go out in the world and seek confirmation of what we believe. We're fast, speedy, efficient thinkers. We seek affirmation of our egos. We basically are like little puppy dogs that want to have our heads patted all the time by <laughs> our, our owner. We're looking for pats from the world, pats from other people that saying we're smart, we're smart. Well, that game won't work in the digital age for the reasons that you said in the beginning. Technology is will always be much smarter than we are. It can basically store more information faster and it can recall it exactly correctly faster than we can. It, it just, if we're playing the old smart, how much I know game, we're gone. All right, we, we lose. So what's new smart? New smart is a different way of saying to myself, This is what it means for me to be good. How can I be a good learner? It's not by knowing, it's by excelling in not knowing. 
And there's basically five parts to it. I'm defined not by what I know or how much I know, but by the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. That's principle number one. I'm redefining my ego. I get my joy. I grade myself, not by knowing more than other people, but by the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. Number two, this is all science. My mental models are not reality. They're just my story of how the world works. We go out in the world every day and we basically see what we believe. We do not generally process information, which basically disconfirms or calls into question what we believe. We're confirmation seekers people. So therefore, my mental, re my mental models are not real. They're just my story. And you've got a different story. Number three, I'm not my ideas. I must decouple my ideas from my ego. Number four, I must be open-minded and treat my ideas, my beliefs, not values, beliefs as hypothesis to be constantly tested and subject to modification by better data. In effect, this is the number four is everybody needs to be a little scientist. Everything I believe is nothing more than a hypothesis. Let's go out and find data that would basically distest it. Or if someone else has data, I'm going to be open-minded and I'm going to re basically modify what I believe best on the best data. It's also the concept of an idea meritocracy. Number five, my mistakes and failures are opportunities to learn. All right. Going basically people are going to excel in this smart machine age, this digital age, by being able to be highly adaptive and learn, learn the speed of change, but also to be able to go into the unknown and figure things out. That's what's hard for technology to do. So this whole concept of I'm smart is new game, new rules, okay? It's no longer this, this focus on me competing against you. In the digital age, my biggest competition is myself. And your biggest competition is you. We have to do the inner work to rewire our brains to overcome basically our existing cognitive way and emotional way of being, which is seek confirmation and defend. Identify what we know with our ego. All right. And all of that basically leads to being closed minded, not listening to people and not being a good learner. It reflects so much what's happening in a business environment Ed, as well, where in the past organizations climbed to the top of a ladder, you know, they create a competitive advantage and then they defend. And they used to be able to do that because the speed of change was slower. The world wasn't as global as it is today. Access to capital was less. And when people climbed to the top of a personal specialization ladder, they do the same thing and they start to defend. When the mindset goes into this defensive mode, they start to neglect and deflect new information. And oftentimes the harder fought the victories, the more you defend. And this is a real threat you talk about. You're exactly right. And and this and what that means is is that the only way out of that is sitting back and telling yourself a new story. I'm in a different world. It's it's not the same as me being taken from, you know, planet Earth and going to Mars, 
but I'm in a different world. The world is basically got new rules, and the rules are disruption, change, human adaptation, innovation, constant learning, staying abreast of what's going on, being, as I said, highly adaptive. Okay, how do I do that? All right, how do I do that? In other words, I've got to rewire myself. Instead of, instead of seeking confirmation, I got to seek novelty, exploration, discovery, okay? You know, I got to, instead of saying, I know this is the answer, I got to actively go out there and hunt for disconfirming information. I got to go look and try to prove myself wrong, all right? Instead of, you know, being in conversations and making sure I tell everybody how smart I am, okay, and either interrupt people or can't, as soon as people stop talking, I just tell them what, quote, the right answer is, uh uh-uh. I got to be excel at asking questions, all right, to learn from other people because everybody's got a different story and they view things differently. And basically, the basically work going forward in most things that involve your mind, your brain, etc., is going to be in teams, small teams. And so I got to be a good team member. That means I've got to basically, it's not competition. It's not competition. It's how can we be the best team? And and so, you know, anytime somebody's, you know, makes a statement, you know, a lot of people say, yes, but. No, yes, but goes in the trash can. We should be in the additive, yes, and, or we need to explore. You know, gee, you, know, you just made this statement. I'm not sure I understand. This is what I think you said. Da, 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 da. Is, is that what you meant? Okay. Or I think I hear you. Can you basically reframe it another way to, so I can make sure? People are going to have to, in other words, instead of focusing on telling and showing the world how smart I am, I've got to excel at being able to ask questions and defer my judgments and be open-minded being able to embrace ambiguity because I've learned how to go out there and figure things out. And and that's where all this goes because human beings are going to have meaningful work in the smart machine age if they can do things that technology can't do. And that's primarily higher order thinking, all right? Higher order thinking. Higher order critical thinking, imaginative thinking, innovative thinking, all right? Emergent thinking, going into the unknown and exploring. And then the second thing is humans will, a differentiator in our key human uniqueness is going to be our ability to emotionally relate to other human beings in positive ways that create the opportunities to have making meaning conversations and learn from each other. You know, I've, I've come to the conclusion I've said and written for CEO world that basically every organization is going to be in the human development business in addition to its core business or core mission, because most of us haven't been trained to think the way that I write about and the way you, that you're writing about in your new book. All right. These, you know, you're, you're on the leading edge and it's the leading edge is that how do, how do I help people rewire how they think? And that in thinking is more than just cognition. Thinking is highly emotional. 
And so it really comes down also to the fact that we have to take ownership of what's going on inside of ourselves and learn to train ourselves so that our inner world, our inner world, we have a quiet mind, quiet ego, positive emotional state, and a calm body, that we're able to go into this unknown, this fearful thing, this admitting that I don't know, admitting that, wow, I made a mistake and be able to deal with all of the stuff going on, which allows us to basically be in the condition that we are a better learner, better collaborator, because we need other people, all right? My doctoral advisor and dear friend of 40, 40 years, I can remember him telling me, he said, Ed, all learning comes from conversations, either deep reflection with yourself, which most people are not good at, or conversations with others. Barbara Fredrickson had had her, her comment. It is scientifically correct to say that nobody reaches his or her full potential in isolation. We need others to learn at our best. We have to be the type of person that others trust and so that they and they also feel comfortable in giving feedback to and comfortable they're not going to be hurt. It's this whole way of how we learn and how we approach life has got to change to make us highly adaptable and highly flexible. That's the difference. That's why humility is the new smart, is that in humility, which is that quiet ego, is one of the two fundamental things that basically liberates us to be able to go into this new world and to learn how to be in this new world. I was thinking about a couple of things you said. One was the idea that we need an idea meritocracy. And the other then was this idea of meaning making conversations, which is core to your work. And I thought of some of the exemplars you talked about here. For those doubters out there who may not think that this is possible, you talked about Ray Dalio, one of the most successful hedge fund managers, the most successful of all time. And then the other was the brilliant idea of the brain trust in Pixar. And I think that principle of the brain trust is so very valuable because I often think of, you mentioned there, we need others to almost perfect and define and help our ideas, which you've done magnificently for me with my book, because you need friction in order to create something magnificent. Those are two very good business examples. You can also look at Google has an idea of meritocracy. You look at W.L. Gorn Company, which is a private company, but a very, very creative, innovative company for decades. All right. They have the same same types of of uh, of, of principles that uh, and, and the purpose of an idea of meritocracy is is, you know, it is clear. It's the best idea. And that means it's not what usually goes on in the hierarchical world. It's usually the idea of the highest ranking. Okay. Most conversations that occur in the business world today, okay, are conversations that, that the most powerful people know where they want to go. And then it's basically a make-believe conversation, all right, that they're going to get to the results. They, they are. They're not open-minded. They know more than everybody. They make more money than everybody. They got more options than everybody. They fly into private jet and everybody else doesn't fly into private jet, on and on and on, okay? And the fact, the fact here is, is, is that making meaning conversations are when people come together 
And you got to have an atmosphere of trust. You got to have an atmosphere that people believe they're psychologically safe, that people can speak truthfully, honestly, respectfully, but honestly. So you got to have, and people can, you basically got to eradicate fear from the table, so to speak. Every, and everybody speaks up. It's a democratic conversation, not just the senior people. And the purpose of the high, of having high quality, making meaning conversations, they're not about advocacy or self-promotion or competition. They're seeking mutual understanding. I seek to understand you and you seek to understand me, but also I seek for you to understand me. So it's each of us. We're dual. I seek to understand you, but I seek you to understand me. And to have those conversations requires, I have to believe you care about me as a person. You want me to be as successful as you want yourself to be. I trust you. You're not going to do me any harm and vice versa. When we get to that stage, we have the power of basically calming down all of the inner stress and reaching a state of being and talking where we are totally all in. It's like we're each in our own flow state of flow. We're all in. We're in the moment. And it's just time flies by. And the highest level of thinking is when teams get in what's called collective flow, teams, four or five people, that everybody's in the flow on what you're working. And I'm sure you've experienced it. And I've experienced it with with clients and everything. It is magical. The stuff that comes out of it. I still remember one that happened three, three years ago with um, four senior executives of, of a global company. And we started out a meeting and they start all their meetings with a meditation check-in, uh, with a meditation and then a personal check-in. How's everybody's doing? Where are you emotionally? Everybody okay today? And then we start out in, in, in the meeting. Um, one of the EVP says, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk about something new. CEO says, fine. What do you want to talk about? And the guy says, I'd like to talk about love in the workplace. <laughs> the silence silence in the room <laughs> i'm sitting there and i'm saying to myself this is going to be interesting okay all right i'd, I'd worked for these people for a number of years before so i knew them all very closely we had the next hour the most phenomenal conversation defining what love means in the workplace platonic love and where he was going that we had to take our as leaders we had to take it our engagement with our people up to a level where they felt like we truly cared about them and therefore they had the space to be themselves and to ask questions and to challenge and to come up with these new ideas. It was like the most amazing thing, okay? Because my immediate reaction was, this is going to be a short conversation. But an hour and a half later, they walked away with a, and they put into their culture a concept of platonic love. Our goal is to care and trust each other and to help each other be all we can be in the furtherance of our mission, in the furtherance of goals to society. I mean, that's cool stuff, man. It doesn't get it, it, And so the point I'm making is, is this, that's a high quality making meaning conversation. Most conversations are not high quality, they're games, all right? Most conversations, there's lots of people in the room and at the table don't feel comfortable speaking up, okay? Lots of conversations, you know. I was in the corporate world. 
I remember sitting in the, in the room and we're, we're your, your audience camp is only hearing me. I remember sitting in corporate meetings and everything and I'm smiling and shaking my head, giving my head you know, up and down. And that was basically called, you know, the, 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 the corporate grin. You know, you walk out of the meeting, you look at somebody and I said, what do you think? And he says, no way and no way I'm doing that. Well, I mean, you were smiling and sort of suggesting. I said, that's what they want to hear. I'm not doing that. They're crazy. You know, there's no conversation. There's people trying to get their way where an idea of meritocracy comes in or psychological safety. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced if you're in any organization, it doesn't have to be business, nonprofit, school, whatever, the ability for you to strategically stay relevant in this new world we're going into, which is going to evolve at a faster, faster, faster pace. Any of every organization's ability to, to stay strategically relevant, that means stay in existence, is highly dependent on the quality of the conversations that occur in that organization. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or had this where somebody buys you a present, but it's really for them. And, and <laughs> I had this with my children. So my boys are 11 and, and 8. And at Christmas time, they brought me all the Greek myths, which are absolutely fantastic. But it was really so I'd read them to them at bedtime. And it's one of the most joyous parts of my day. But one of the one of the myths we came across is there's a constant character in all the myths called Chiron, which is a centaur, which is half man, half horse. And often it's used as a term to describe this period of time we're entering into where man and machine work together. And I'd love your thoughts on the centaur, the age of the centaur, where we're going into this time, where it, it feels very much to me that we focus on where we're good at and let them do what they're good at. Yes, and Yes, and Okay. Not yes, but. Yes, and I hear you. I hear you, buddy. The, the yes, <laughs> the yes, and is, is that it's going, we're going to integrate with technology. It will just be a matter of years before you will have the opportunity to have technology basically embedded in your body that will basically give you readouts and measurements about everything going on into your body. All right. Augmented reality is right around the corner that basically you're going technology is going to be able to bring things into a lens that you can look at that, uh, um, you know, augments and enhances what you're, what you could be seeing and the knowledge you have which basically it's in effect helping you learn, et cetera. And virtual reality. Virtual reality is being used in some very, very creative ways in training people how to manage their emotions, all right? How to generate positive emotions and how to manage negative emotions. How not to let one's emotions take over and sort of run wild in you and where you're expressing yourself and behaving badly. Virtual reality training is is is, is real uh, in that, and so and I think within the next seven eight years, you I will have a chance of being able to have if we want a neural net on, on top of our skull, where our brain communicates with technology by itself. Uh, so I think that I think that we are going to face a question of of not only relevance but equity or equality as as if 
is how when technology can be embedded into people or can enhance how people behave and learn, etc. And it can be for good or bad, okay? Um, uh, how do we basically not create a class of people that is so far superior, what I call techno sapiens instead of homo sapiens? Techno sapiens and the rest of us homo sapiens are basically at a different level. That's going to be one of the major issues in our society the next 10 to 15 years. And that's even before we get to genetic reengineering, okay, which is even wilder than any of that. So I, I, think, I think that, yes, for a while, it's going to be, we're going to be different than the machines or the technology. But coming pretty soon, within five years, there's going to be a lot of technology that could be easily be, we could use to make ourselves better thinkers, et cetera, better people, et cetera. And we're going to have a major societal issue as to affordability and what happens to people that basically take advantage of that versus people that don't. Agreed. And, and I, I think today, Novartis and Google had an experiment in the past where they had a contact lens and the lens not only gave you better sight, but also read your body signals to detect disease within your system. You know, and, and I, to your very point, I thought about how that can be taken advantage of as a tracker. You know, it can give augmented sight. It could be given insights on the person you're meeting, augmented realities added to it, etc. And the people with access to that have access to knowledge and knowledge is power. And it creates an even wider wealth gap that we experience in the world. But bringing it back to happier thoughts, Ed, I, I thought many of our audience are L&D, learning and development, and HR executives and senior leaders and thought leaders, and some are technologists in the space as well. But I thought of a brilliant quote that a guy called Clifford Stoll was an author, but he was also a futurist back in the 90s. And he had this great quote. He said, if you really want to know about the future, don't ask the technologist ask or a scientist or a physicist, don't ask someone who's writing code. No, if you want to know what society is going to be like in 20 years, ask a kindergarten teacher. We work in education. Many of our audience work in education and we are at the cutting edge of change. But also something you said at the top of the show is that learning and innovation go hand in hand. We need to be learning quicker than ever before and unlearning quicker than ever before in order to operate in this new world. Yes. And, and, you know, as, as you know, I have a part in my, in my, in, in the hyper learning book where I talk to the adults who are reading the book and I make the statement that in reality, we all got to become more childish. All right. Children up to about age eight or nine, generally speaking in the United States, are very innovative. Okay, think about when you learned how to ride a bicycle. Okay, what you know, maybe you had a bicycle with two wheels, or maybe you had the little training wheels, whatever. Maybe you had a parent or a friend or an older sibling help you. But basically, you never rode a bike. So what do you do? Somebody sort of holds the bike, you get on, maybe gives you just a little push, and you do something. What happens? Bam! You fall over. You maybe get dusty. You get hurt. You may cry. You may not cry. Doesn't matter. All right. What do you do? You get back up on and you get with the, on the bike and you do it again and you fall again. But you went a little longer and you keep doing it till you can ride a bike. All right. So think about it. 
Children are courageous. They're fearless. They have resilience. Okay. They want to learn to do it themselves. Okay. If you give them autonomy, that's how we as adults need to be. All right. You know, we go out in the world seeking confirmation. No, in the new world, we should go seek novelty, exploration, the new, the different. Okay. In the in the the new world is about embracing differences and understanding differences and trying to make meaning and sense of them. It's it's about basically saying, you know, how how can we improve this? In in so it's um it's a it's in it's being open minded and it's becoming more childish than machine like. The Industrial Revolution and the carry-on of the Industrial Revolution model of living and competition and survival of the fittest, which is rampant in the United States, one of our big issues. But all of this basically leads to, if you think about it, inhibits learning and innovation and trying things. Why? Because I want you to think I'm smart. And if I fall off the bike, you think I'm dumb. And I'm just using the bike as an example. All right? Or I don't want to have a competition between me and you as to who can ride the bike the fastest. I want to really figure out if there's a way for me to get on the bike different than you. So basically I can, all right, ride the bike in a way that's safer. Okay. So if I fall, I don't fall on my head. You know, it's this type of being and kids are wonderful. I mean, if you've ever, I've spent time in kindergartens and in early elementary schools. Um, uh, I was on the board of a private school that was very, very forward thinking. You go into these schools and you look at the kids' faces and you look at the joy and you look at what they're doing and you ask them what they're doing. And they're just so involved in it. They're not sitting there in a, in a desk writing down notes. Okay, they're not sitting in a desk with their hands on the on the table, trying to raise their hand to to answer the teacher's question. No, they're basically there are no desks. They're little tables. They're little chairs. They're off someone's working over on this. That's that's the type of environment that basically we need to, in, you know, middle school and high schools get back to. And also in colleges, colleges are going to become highly experiential learning because of technology. You know, college kids will basically be doing projects with college kids in different places of the world and non-college kids all over the world, all through technology. And so technology is going to liberate us from our physical space and technology can liberate us from our inner space. So long as technology is used for good. Technology can be used for good and technology can be used for evil. It depends upon the people that are basically controlling the technology. We know that. Okay. So we, it's, it's, so you're right. It's going back to this. We all need to be more childlike us adults. Don't take yourself so seriously. Okay. We're just, you know, we're just a glob of stuff put together and we don't know how long we're going to be here. And no, we're not any better than anybody else. We just had better circumstances or more opportunities or we lucked. Okay. So much of it is serendipity. It's just pure luck. You happen to be at the right place. And next to you is somebody you just make a conversation with who happens to be XYZ who offers you a job. 
I mean, if you, nothing, you didn't apply for a job. But all, I mean, I've had that happen in my life, okay? I mean, it's like stuff happens. There's a, there is a, there is almost a mystical way in, out there in the, of energy in the universe that we have to tap into. You reminded me of a beautiful Pablo Picasso quote that I, I often quote, all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. And I think that's a lovely concept for your work and to bring it to life. Ed, where can people find out more about your work, your books, your workshops? The book and my writings and everything is, uh, I have a website, www.edhess.org. A lot of stuff there, probably more stuff than people want. Uh, <laughs> and and also, if uh, people want to reach out to me, I'm, I'm, on, LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, life's a journey. We're all on this journey. And the goal is 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 being with people that are on that are on the journey. We'll be doing it our different ways, but to open oneself up. And then I want to stress inner peace. This quiet ego, quiet mind, quiet body, and positive emotional state. This goes back three thousand years to the great ancient Eastern and Western philosophies. All right, and 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 basically the science of behavior change. We have to take ownership of ourself in the world because our highest level of being, okay, where we can embrace the world in a non-judgmental, fearless, open mind with a lack of self-absorption is this inner stillness or calmness that I call inner peace. And that's personal work. I know you do a lot of it and and but it's that work which also prepares you to go out in the world and be more receptive than judgmental, than competitive, that or close-minded, and we we got to take ourselves in the world. We got to show up at the table every day, at the office, at the school, at wherever. Okay, at the field, wherever. We got to show up each day in the right state of mind to be open to the possibilities. It has been an absolute pleasure having you as our very first guest on the Inside Learning Podcast brought to you by the Learnervate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin, Professor of Business Administration, Batten Fellow and Batten Executive in Residence at the Darden Graduate School of Business and the author of Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change, Ed Hess. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, my friend. All the best, all the best and all the best to your listeners. Thanks for joining us on Inside Learning. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.